The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. We come to the Word of God this morning. We come to the Word of God two days after Christmas and I think what all of us recognize is kind of a, a dead zone or a, a wall when you've, you've prepared for something, waited for something, something arrives and then, and then it's, it's over. I know uh, when it comes to Christmas, the post-Christmas lull, at, at one point in my life it looks something like you wait, you wait, you wait, you wait, you wait for Christmas morning, you wake up, you get to open presents, and then by two o'clock in the afternoon, presents are all opened. I'd played with all my toys, broken one of them, built the model I got, look around, even all the Christmas cookies are gone, and now what is there to do? I waited for months for this, and it's going in a couple hours. Now, now perhaps my, my lull looks more like wait for, for time with family, and and, and fellowship and, and rejoicing together and, and you wait and look forward to this for months and then in a day or a couple of days it's over and, and I almost need to, to take a couple of days to reorient and refocus my mind and my heart on, on what's next. Maybe, maybe for others of you this lull looks like going through four weeks of hurried preparation, wrapping, baking, shopping, singing, preparing and now it's all over and thankfully because you couldn't have taken it much longer anyways. And thankfully, all the cookies are gone, too, because our diets couldn't have taken any more of those either. And so we just collapse into a few good naps for a few days. But isn't, but isn't that the question we face when we've looked ahead to something and waited for something, and then it arrives, and then it's gone? Did it live up to the emotional energy we poured into preparing for it and, and looking ahead to it? So here we are two days after Christmas, and perhaps we're wondering or feeling... What were we anticipating for the last two months that was now gone in a day? Do we just go back to our regular routines that we do all throughout the year? Did, did the day of Christmas mean anything, bring anything, do anything? Or is it just, okay, that day's gone and we're back to normal? Was it worth the wait? Was it worth all the preparation? Well, that's a question that's on our minds, but it's also a question on the minds of several in God's Word. And if you would turn with me to Luke chapter 2... Here we meet a man and a woman, and we get to see a man and a woman who have been waiting and looking for and anticipating something for decades, for their entire lives, and what they see and how they respond has much to do with how we answer these questions as well. Start reading in Luke 2, verse 22. And when the time came for there, that's Joseph and Mary's purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him, that's Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, 
waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. His father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Let's pray. Father, this is your word, your word that you have given to us. I pray that your spirit who wrote these words and who still speaks in these words would stir our hearts to respond with greater joy and love for our Savior, the baby who was born, who we have just celebrated. We pray this through Christ. Amen. This passage of Scripture that we've read starts out in a fairly normal or or mundane way. We see Joseph and Mary and their faithful obedience to bring the baby Jesus to do what God's law had required them to do. Just before we started reading in verse 21, they took him at the eighth day to be circumcised as God's law required. And now in our passage, we're 40 days after the birth of Christ, And Joseph and Mary bring the baby to the temple for the purification. According to God's law, a woman was unclean for 40 days after giving birth. And she would then come and make a sacrifice or an offering for her purification on the 40th day. This offering or sacrifice was a lamb and a pigeon that she would offer. Our text, of course, you'll note, uh, says that Joseph and Mary did not offer a lamb and a pigeon, but, but two pigeons or a pair of turtle doves. And this was according to a provision in the law for those who were, who too, who were too poor to afford a lamb that they could bring to turtle doves. And a comment here that, that gives us insight into the poverty, into the family in which God's son was born. They also went up, in addition to offering the sacrifice of purification, to consecrate or present Jesus before the Lord. You'll remember back in, in Exodus, the story of the angel of death killing the firstborn of the Egyptians, but passing over the houses of the Israelites who had the blood of the lamb over the doorpost. And after that, God's law says that the firstborn child in Israel should be consecrated or set apart to him as a result of this salvation of the firstborn in Israel. And so Mary and Joseph in fulfillment of God's word, also go to consecrate their firstborn child. Now, if, if you're Mary, and you think back over the last 10 or 11 months of your life, you've had quite a few surprises in life. 
You've had an angel suddenly appear to you. And this angel who suddenly appears to you tells you that you're going to bear a son even though you're a virgin. And your fiancé also has an angel appear to him and tell him to marry you despite the fact that you're pregnant. And then you give birth to this son in, in a stable where no one would know where the stable was. And yet shepherds from the fields come and fall down and start worshiping your baby just after delivery. There's a lot of surprises here. But here in our text, Mary's in for another surprise. Because as Mary and Joseph go about their obedience to God, Mary and Joseph are again amazed, this time by a devout man and an elderly woman who meet them as they're coming into the temple courts. You know, I can only imagine what what Mary might have been thinking about for these 40 days after the birth of Christ. An angel had foretold his birth. We're told that this baby would be the Savior of Israel. But you, many of you know what it's like to, to have a baby, a three, four, five-week-old baby. It's very mundane. It's hard. And you can only wonder Mary thinking, well, well what is this all about? How is this baby going to be a Savior? What's going to happen? How will his life be different? And maybe after six weeks of normalcy of the mundane work of raising a small infant, she's thinking, is this really just going to be a lot of hard work, a lot of normalcy? And into perhaps these questions walk up a random, ordinary guy and an elderly woman who at the very sight of her baby burst into songs of praise. As we look at this interaction with Simeon and Anna, I want to look first at the attitude in the life of Simeon and Anna as they wait for their coming Savior, and then secondly at their response once they meet Him. So first, look in verses particularly 25 through 27, at the anticipation that marks the lives of Simeon, Anna, and apparently others in Jerusalem as well. You know, when we're excited for something and when we're anticipating something, our anticipation and excitement can actually shape how we live our lives and how we respond to situations. I got a first-hand picture of this a couple of weeks ago. My wife and I were hosting an event at our house for Safe Families. It's a program that many of you in the congregation know about, run by Bethany Christian Services, where we offer temporary housing for children who need a place to stay. We were hosting this event, and and anytime we host an event at our house, uh, it has some small measure of interest for our children, and they were in another room waiting, listening to music and playing. But then word got out that Mr. Thudium, kindergarten teacher extraordinaire, would be attending the meeting. And suddenly the whole tone shifted. I looked around to see my daughter carrying her CD player out to the front porch. I said, well, what are you doing? And he said, well, we're going out to wait for Mr. Thudium. And I look out a minute later, and there they are jumping, playing, with music blaring on the front porch, looking to be, see who can get the first glimpse of Mr. Thudium's arrival, and perhaps celebrating it as well. See, that's anticipation, dictating how we live our lives. Well, for Simeon and Anna, their anticipation is, a, is an anticipation, awaiting for the Savior, the Messiah, the Anointed One who would save God's people, and that anticipation shapes the pattern of their lives as well. Look at how Simeon is described in verse 25. Luke describes Simeon as righteous, devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. I love the specific way that Luke describes Simeon here. 
If you look at the, the wording, Simeon literally is righteous, devout, and waiting. This description tells us that Simeon, he didn't just believe that God would send a Messiah who would save Israel. Simeon was, was so actively looking for and so actively waiting for the coming of this Savior that this posture of anticipation actually becomes a defining mark of his character so that he could be described as someone who is righteous, someone who is devout, and someone who is waiting. Longing for the fulfillment of God's promise is not just something Simeon does. It's actually part of who he is. This anticipation defines who he is and how he lives his life. Anna also is described as a prophetess who, as soon as she saw the baby, Jesus begins to to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. See, faithful Israel, yes, was marked by obedience to God's law, but faithful Israel was also marked by this sense of anticipation, this eager waiting for the Messiah who would come. And all throughout Jesus' ministry, he's going to meet people who are said to be waiting you might, you might remember Joseph of Arimathea. He is the one who takes Jesus' body off the cross and, and buries it in a tomb that belongs to him. And Joseph of Arimathea is described as a man who's waiting for the kingdom of God. Or maybe you think of the two men on the road to Emmaus. The men on the road to Emmaus are described as disappointed because they were waiting for Israel's redemption and had hoped that Jesus would end their wait. See, there's this anticipation, this this excitement, this looking forward, longing for one God had promised to send. When would he arrive? And it's two of these faithful watchers who meet the baby Jesus as he's brought into the temple. I don't want us to miss the significance that it's these two people, Simeon and Anna, who recognize Jesus when he arrives. Remember that the temple would have been a key center of activity in Jerusalem. So as Joseph and Mary walked from wherever they were staying to the temple to fulfill the law, they would have passed hundreds of people. Many people would have been around them. Many people would have been in the temple. And yet of all of these hundreds of people that Joseph and Mary pass, it's Simeon and Anna, these two people who recognize their Savior. Why? Why them? Why them and not anyone else? Well, most obviously, of course, the text tells us that Simeon had the Holy Spirit and that Anna was a prophetess. That's certainly a part of the answer. But isn't it also significant that the two people who recognized their Savior when he arrives were people who were watching without ceasing, were worshiping and praying continually, did not depart from the temple were people known for their righteous character? These were people continually, constantly, day in and day out, night and day, who were looking for, longing for, watching, praying for this person, this Messiah to arrive. See, those whose whole life is based on and built on and rests on the promises of God are likely to be the people who will first recognize when those promises are fulfilled. I don't want us to miss this link. Scripture calls us so frequently to be continually intent on our Savior. We're called to look for His coming, ready with lamps trimmed, watching for the groom who will arrive at any moment. We're called to desire His Word, to desire His Word like newborn babies desire milk. 
How, how does a newborn baby desire milk? A newborn baby desires milk as someone who knows the urgency because without that milk, they will die. That's the urgency that we're to look to the words of God, to the presence of God, to be waiting and ready for His coming. But we're so often so good at being distracted, aren't we? We're so good at not being fully intent on waiting for the presence and the promises of God, aren't we? I love how J.C. Ryle, a a well-known Anglican bishop from England in the 19th century, wrote about this passage, and he said this. He said, let us learn a lesson from these good people. If they, with so few helps and so many discouragements in life, lived such a life of faith, how much more ought we, with a finished Bible and a full gospel before us, let us strive like them to walk by faith and to look forward with eager longing and expectation. I had a a first-hand picture of what it looks like to live by faith with an eager longing. Some of you here participate in our church's Wednesday night prayer meetings. And a few weeks ago, I was talking to one of the other pastors on staff here who had joined some of you on Wednesday evening for our Wednesday prayer meetings. And he, he commented, it was such a beautiful description. He said, you know, it was such a joy to pray with these saints whose relationship with Christ is so nourished by times of prayer and by being in His Word that praying with them was like praying with people who had one foot on earth and one foot in heaven. Isn't that a beautiful description of what it looks like to be continually in the temple, continually in the presence of God, continually and eagerly looking for the presence and promises of God? And isn't, isn't that our desire? Isn't that what we long for and hope for as well? Or are we, are we content? Are we content with the busy distractions and, and cheap pleasures and burdens of this life so that we don't feel the need or the attraction of growing in the joy and fellowship of our Savior? This is Simeon and Anna. They saw Christ come as a baby And we have seen Christ as a baby. We've also seen what Christ has done and all the glory of His redemption. But seeing Christ who came as a baby once should only spur us on to more eager longing for Christ who will come again. More eager longing to be in His presence and see His promises fully and finally fulfilled. And so the first call of this text is may we be like righteous Simeon in prayer-filled Anna waiting for the redemption of God's people, continually, eagerly focused on and resting on the promises and presence of our God. Well, these faithful saints had waited with eager anticipation, but their waiting ends in these verses. When the baby arrives in the temple, their waiting ends. So secondly, notice the response from those who are waiting for the consolation of Israel. When Simeon sees Joseph and Mary coming into the temple with the baby Jesus, the Holy Spirit says, this is the one. And Simeon in verses 29 through 32 responds with this outburst of praise, this song of thanksgiving, blessing God and declaring that this baby is enough to complete every desire of his life so that he can now depart in peace. You know, tradition, tradition says that Simeon was a very old man 
and he was now ready to die. The text doesn't say that. Nothing in the text declares that he's an old man. Simeon's readiness to die, his, his willingness to die, has much more to do with the fact that every desire was now complete. Jesus had met everything that he needed. What a dramatic statement, too. And I've had some pretty exciting things happen to me in my life, and I'm sure many of you have had even more exciting things happen to you in your life, but never once has something happened to me where I sat down and said, you know what, that's it. I can die happy because that was everything I was longing for. Some of you have probably gotten some pretty great Christmas gifts too. My son and I each received perplexus maze balls for Christmas. Maybe some of you have gotten a perplexus maze ball, and I think we've spent about 15 hours, the two of us, over the last two days solving our perplexus maze balls. But even solving the perplexus maze ball was not something where I would solve it and say, now life is complete. I can die in peace. Nothing can bring us to that. And yet this baby does. And here's Anna then. Anna, she's waiting for the redemption of Israel and she sees this baby. And what does she do? She bursts forth in thanksgiving to God and starts eagerly talking to anyone who will listen. One commentator said this, Anna thanked God for the gift of her salvation and this news was too good for Anna to keep to herself. So like the shepherd, she became one of the first evangelists, unable not to talk about who this baby was and what he meant for God's people. No wonder Joseph and Mary responded with amazement. I'm sure many of you, either carrying a baby of your own or seeing another, mo- uh, another mother walk in with a baby, have seen small crowds gather around to, to coo over the baby and its cuteness. But never once have I seen a mother walk in with a baby and see crowds erupt with songs of praises. That's a response. That's a response of those who are awaiting and who see the fulfillment of God's promise. But doesn't this bring us to the question that we started with? Why songs of praise over a baby? This baby hasn't done anything. He hasn't done anything but cry for milk. Is this baby who arrived in the manger and shows up at the temple as a five-week-old really worth the hype of centuries of God's promises? Or, or is this a brief song, a brief celebration after which Simeon and Anna are just going to go back to their regular daily life in the temple? Or does something change? And I think that's the question many of us wonder too. Is this baby who was born on Christmas really worth the hype? Is this baby really supposed to change my life? Or maybe there's other of us who have known about Jesus and we know he's supposed to change our life. But maybe we're still uneasy and we ask ourselves constantly, well, we know Jesus is supposed to be worth all this, but I don't find my heart bursting forth into songs of praises at every second. Does this baby justify the response he gets? But if we look at Simeon's song, Simeon gives us the reasons why this baby is worth the praise he gets. Notice first that Simeon says, verse 30, that this baby is God's salvation. Laying eyes on this baby is the same as laying eyes on his salvation. Now this is an extraordinary remark. Because notice that Simeon does not say, this is the baby who is going to become salvation. He doesn't say, this is the baby who 33 years from now, people are going to say, ah, now I have seen this baby work salvation. 
He doesn't say this is the baby who's going to accomplish salvation someday. He says, this baby is my salvation. The presence of this baby is Simeon's salvation. That's an incredible remark. And certainly we'd want to say, well, Jesus doesn't save people simply by being born. And that's true. His death and his resurrection are key moments in his work of salvation. But in another sense, it is perfectly accurate to say that the very presence of God with man, the very presence of this baby is God's salvation. For this is the one person, even though he's a baby, the one being, the God-man, who is enough to satisfy every longing of every human heart for all of life forever. We lay eyes on this baby. We've seen salvation. You know, our hearts have so many needs. We live in a culture that has met our physical needs to greater extents than any culture in all of history ever has. And yet we seem to live in a culture where our hearts, our minds, and our souls have more needs or more felt needs than any culture ever before. Some of you, some of you know that I'm, I'm 15 years older than my, my youngest sister. And all of our siblings so far have gone to the same college in Michigan. And so my parents have this unique perspective of going year after year on Parents' Day. And now they've been to the same college and have developed relationships with the same professors over 15 years. And my dad uh, told me that he asked one of the professors at the school uh, this past fall... He said, you know, we've been coming here for 15 years and you've been teaching here for more than 15 years. Have you noticed any difference in the student body who comes to college, comes to your school over these, over these years? And the professor's comment was a perceptive one. He said, you know, we find that now we have to provide counselings for so many students when they get here because so many students are struggling with stress, anxiety, depression, and simply managing life. That's where our students are. But don't we feel the same thing? Don't so many of us feel the same weight of stress and anxiety and worry? We know the weight of stress. We know the debilitating impact of anxiety and and hopelessness that we feel. We know the worry and the fear that things won't be the way we hope they will be. And we know the hurt and shame over things that have not been what we would hope that they would be. And yet here in the midst of a society at large and in the midst of our hearts in particular that are so needy, comes a baby, a baby who is enough to deeply satisfy every longing of every heart so that we can say, now we can depart in peace. I love the way Dr. Phil Riken, who's president of Wheaton College and former pastor at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, he comments this on, on this verse. He says, the child in Simeon's arms was not simply part of his salvation, but salvation itself. Jesus is all that anyone needs to be saved. So we could also say, not just Simeon, anyone who has seen Jesus with the eyes of faith is now prepared to die in peace. Because Jesus, even as a baby, was the God-man. And he can meet every heart, every heart's longing for all of life. In fact, That seems to be exactly what Simeon declares in the rest of his song. Simeon goes on to declare and to announce that this baby is a light for revelation to the Gentiles, for glory to the people of Israel. You know, imagine what a moment this was for Simeon. Simeon spent his lifetime waiting for the consolation of Israel, for the redemption of Israel. 
And at the moment of fulfillment, when he takes this baby, this hope for Israel in his arms, the Spirit suddenly reveals to him that this baby isn't just the hope of Israel. This baby is the hope for everyone. This baby is salvation for all people, for Jew, for Gentile, for all God's people. And so Simeon can then declare in verse 31 that this baby is God's preparation for salvation, is God's salvation in the presence of all people. The impact of this baby is exponentially greater than the redemption of Jerusalem. It is redemption through Jerusalem to all of God's people throughout the whole world. That's a baby that's worth waiting for. But Luke tells us more. Not only is this baby the one who will save all God's people, but Simeon, after this song of praise, goes on to talk to Mary. And Simeon adds this explanation about Jesus' ministry. He says in verses 33 and following, he says, Jesus will determine the fall and the rising of many in Israel. Not everyone will honor and rejoice in him. He will be a figure that many will oppose. But this is precisely God's plan. For Jesus is going to reveal the thoughts of many hearts. Jesus is the one who will reveal where the hearts of all people are. In other words, Simeon is saying that Jesus, the Savior of mankind, the glory of Israel, is the culmination of God's work of redemption. This, this work of salvation that God began announcing in Genesis 3 and has continued to talk about through all of his prophets, Jesus is the one he has been talking about. And now we find out that no one can see this baby king. No one can see this person, Jesus, and not have his heart revealed and his destiny determined. Jesus deserves hymns of praise, not because of the fact that he solves our problems or makes us happy. He deserves songs of praise because of who he is, the revealer of hearts, the one God has set on the throne, the Savior of all people. But not everyone will respond this way. See, either, either we will see him and turn away, perhaps because we're too distracted by our own interests, perhaps because we are opposed to him. Either we'll turn away or we will throw our whole lives and our whole dependence upon this baby, upon this person, because he makes our lives whole, and praise will erupt from our hearts made whole. But the presence of Jesus makes the thoughts of every heart known, one way or the other. And this means at least that regardless of what we say, The way we, the way you and I respond to the person of Jesus reveals the true thoughts of our hearts. I love love the questions that J.C. Ryle asks about this verse. He says, and now, what do you and I think of Jesus? What thoughts does he call forth in our hearts? Are we for him or are we against him? Do we love him or do we neglect him? Do we stumble at his doctrine? Or do we find him the very life from the dead? And as we look at Simeon and Anna, I think we can ask further. Do we find ourselves talking about this Savior or forgetting about him in the routines of our day? Do we find him our greatest treasure, the thing we hoped for and longed for, our joy and our crown? Or do we feel nothing but perhaps some obligation to try to pray a bit more or obey him better if we can? These these questions are not questions meant to stir up guilt so we'll try a little bit harder. 
nor are they meant to doubt our salvation because we're still imperfect. But these questions are questions for our hearts. They're questions for our hearts because when Jesus arrives, he reveals the hearts of everyone. So our response to him, the way you and I respond to him, whether of neglect of him, whether opposition to him, or whether wholehearted acceptance and dependence upon him shows where our heart is and therefore what our destiny is. So where is your heart? Do you neglect him or oppose him or have you thrown yourself upon him? Where is your heart? Where is my heart? This baby is the revelation of life and glory. The satisfaction of every longing heart. The fulfillment of all God's promises. Do you know him? What is your response of your heart? If you don't know him, come to him. For the hope that he offers, he offers to you. And perhaps there's many of us here who have known about Jesus and the hope he offers as long as we've known about Christmas. This is nothing new to us. But perhaps we need to examine our hearts in order to bring them more fully in line with what we say we believe about him. Isn't that what sanctification is? Isn't that what growing in holiness is? Seeing our lives come more in line with what we say we believe about him? So where are our hearts this morning? In the end, Christmas may be a day that comes and goes in the rhythm of the calendar. But Simeon and Anna show us that Christmas wasn't actually what we were hoping for or waiting for at all. Christmas is just a feast. It's just a celebration. It's just a day that points us back to what our hearts were really longing for, or really waiting for. See, this baby that we celebrate on Christmas comes into the need of our lives. He lets us live and die in peace. He sheds the full light of God's revelation on our hearts and so ignites praise and thanksgiving to the God who is our hope. And of course, once we see Jesus come the first time, once we see the hope that he is, this baby sets our hearts longing all the more for his return. Because this baby who came once is coming again. And when he comes again, all of God's promises will be fully and finally and perfectly fulfilled and we will all be standing with both feet in heaven thanks to the name of Jesus. See, this baby, he's worth the wait. Let's pray. Oh God, what a, what a gift you have given. Christmas Day is a good day. It is a fun day for friends and family and fellowship, but Christmas is just a reminder of that first night when Jesus came into the world. Jesus, the one who can set our hearts at rest. Jesus, who can cause each of us to say, I can now live and I can now die in peace for this. This is my Savior. Lord, give us hope in Him. And may our lives be marked with a continual, eager longing and anticipation for His return. We pray that you would work this through your spirit for the glory of our God.